Good morning, everyone. If you haven't met me, my name's Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. It's lovely to have you with us, whether it's your first time or your hundredth time with us. I hope you have an excellent morning with us today. We've been going through the Gospel of John, preaching through the entire Gospel, starting way back in January. And we're trying to get most of it knocked off by the end of this year. It was one of our 12 steps for 2014. So we've got to the beginning of chapter 13 now. And to one of the... um, one of the most well-known stories about Jesus is actually only in this gospel. It's not actually mentioned in the other three. But it is one of these enduring images of Christianity, of Jesus Christ washing the feet of his disciples and all um, that it means and all that that means. And it, it's one of those things that on, on the surface is very simple. But behind it, there is powerful meaning. And if you think about our culture, our life and times, there are lots of images in our culture that we are aware of, that on the surface look very simple, but behind that there is huge, deep meaning. I've got some up on the PowerPoint. Let's look at the first one. Hopefully you recognize this person. If not, why not? This is, um, who is that? Churchill. So Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister during the Second World War. And that, essentially that's just a guy with a cigar in a uniform giving the victory sign. But behind that is a whole piece of world history the Second World War, the British part in that, his role as the leader through a, na- a nation through a very dark time. Uh, there was the, the famous speeches he gave after the Battle of Britain, never in the field of human conflict. So much we know by some means to so few, all things like that. And, then, and he's kind of that image of him leading the nation through a very dark time, ultimately to victory with the Allies in the Second World War. What about the second one? Martin Luther King. That's just a, a young Baptist preacher talking before a crowd in Washington, D.C. But actually, it's way more than that because on, the, on that picture, he was giving a speech. And the speech starts, I have a dream. And that, that kind of that speech, uh, he became the figurehead of the sort of civil rights movement. That, that speech has echoed down through the decades, shaped a nation, touched nations of the world. It's so much more than kind of what we see there. So many owe so much to what he did and him and others kind of led through um, in the United States of America in the civil rights movement. What about the next one? <laughs> There's a bunch of guys holding up a piece of metal and they all look very happy. But if you're... English, <laughs> and you like sports, this is one of the few things you can cling on to that was actually good. England won the World Cup way back in 1966. There's the captain, Bobby Moore, holding up the trophy. It meant for a brief period of time that the English football team were the best in the world, and it has a kind of great meaning. However many years later, we still haven't got even close to that, but, so that's why we hold on to it. But there's this image. It means so much more of kind of sporting prowess, national pride, etc., etc., what about this last one? This is a little bit more up to date. That's an awful lot of flowers outside a fence. But actually, that, that is the memorial after the death of um, Princess Diana, uh, Princess of Wales. Um, I still remember the day, the exact moment when I heard the news. And then this kind of national outpouring that wasn't organized, it just came. And there were flowers filled um, the city. And actually, but that points to more than just a funeral that was a, a, a young lady who kind of who touched the world, who was kind of catapulted into royalty and through her kind of life and actions, touched so many, changed so much, spoke so much, um, so much more than just flowers on the ground there. And so we'll come to the image we have now um, of Jesus wa- uh, washing the disciples' feet. It was on the surface, it's just a guy with a bowl of water. 
But actually behind that, there is so much more, so much more significance. And hopefully, I'll do it justice today and bring out some of it. So if you found John chapter 13, let's just read the passage and then we'll look at what this means. Okay, John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, have loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had gone from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and took a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need a wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. All right, I want to look at three things today um, from the passage. One thing concerning God, one thing concerning us as individuals, and one concerning us as a corporate group. So I'm going to look at um, how Jesus washing the disciples shows God's love to us. It shows us our salvation, and it shows how we should act. Okay, first one, how it shows God's love to us. Now, if you look at verse 1, right at the beginning, the motivation behind what Jesus has done is God's love. It says there, right there, it says, The feast of the Passover, Jesus knew the hour had come to part of this world. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus and his disciples, we saw last week, they've come to the... Jerusalem for the Passover, the big festival in the Jewish calendar, the biggest one. There would have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of people crammed into Jerusalem. They've set aside a place to have it. They've gone there for their meal. We know it's the last few kind of days of Jesus' life. He said that, I'm going to depart. He says, I'm going. I'm, I'm leaving this world. So he knows the end is nigh. He's got his disciples together kind of for his last meal with them. And he, John makes it clear that what is going to motivate his actions is love for his followers, love for his disciples. That's the overriding thing. It's not a job that needs doing, and Jesus just said, oh, I'll step up because no one else is. It says he loved his own to the end. And we talk about the love of God. God loves his creation, loves the people in it. There is a kind of a constant to that, to God's love. But there's also a peculiarity to God's love for his people. God loves his people with a kind of a special focused love, just like a parent loves their children with a special love. We've got a whole bunch of kids out there in kids' work. As a leader of the church, I love them all. I'm glad they're here. I'm glad they're they're learning about Jesus with our great kids' workers. But there are two in there who have my heart because they're mine. They're my sons. And so there is a peculiar love I put upon them because they're my children. And I have that kind of sense of 
ownership, being a father to them. And it's like God. He, he, there's, a, there's a love, but there's a peculiar love for his people. And it says that he loves his own, and he'll love them to the end. He'll love them ultimately. He'll love them utterly. He'll love them completely. And a theme of John's Gospels, John's writing, he's often called the Apostle of Love because he wants to kind of write about love, that we are to love one another, God's love for us. And if we trace through the Gospel of John, we will find this kind of reoccurring theme of the love of God for his people. It begins where the Word was always been, eternally past, but then he came to earth as a man. And he gave people the right to become children of God. There was that motivation for God to come to earth, to call people to himself, to be his children. I want to bring people in to me. He called his disciples. Chapter 3, we find that famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We have the woman at the well who he speaks to. The Samaritan. The outcast. No, she was a woman. She was female. What did Jesus do? Jesus comes and speaks to her. He engages with her and he says, I'm going to give you, give you living water. This water you drink from the well, eventually you're going to get thirsty again. But the stuff I give you, are not going to do that. He heals people. The blind. There was the, the, the official who came and said, my son is dying. And he says, go, I'm going to heal them. The guy at the pool, he says. He talks about being the bread of life. You come to me, you're never going to go hungry. He says, I'm, I'm going to give living water. You come to me, you'll never thirst. Come to me, come to me. He talks about being the good shepherd. I'm the one who, who lays down his life for the sheep. You come to me, you'll be in my flock, and I will take care of you. I will look after you. And then ultimately, then we saw in just in chapter 11 before the summer, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He was dead, and it says kind of he was moved with compassion. He wept at the tomb of his friend, that love, and eventually said, Lazarus, come forth. And so John has woven that all the way through his gospel, but it's not isolated to one gospel. John wasn't just a soppy one. John wasn't the one who's always love, love, love. No, it's, it's woven through the whole of the story of the Bible. We go back to the beginning. What do we have? We have Adam and Eve in the garden. God made a people for himself that he would be in relationship with him. He formed them out of the mud of the ground. Everything else he spoke into being. Let there be, and it was. When it came to mankind, there was something peculiar about it. I want to be engaged with him. So he said, he, the picture is he formed them. And then he blew life into them, blew breath in them. He set them in the garden. He said, you're my people. You can rule over all this. Multiply, fill it, name the animals. Be my kind of... Leaders down here, and you will have special relationship with me. I will walk with you in the garden. I will be with you. We know it goes wrong. Genesis 3, and then the rest of the Bible is a, is, a, is a story of God calling people to himself. I need a people for myself. I want them. I want to love them. Abraham, you and your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. You're going to be my people. And he has a son. I'm going to give you a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They then multiply into a nation in Egypt in slavery. We have the beginning of Exodus where God says, I'm going to call my people out. They're my people and they will come and worship me and be mine. And I will set my heart upon them and my name upon them. And Moses leads them out of slavery and then they're in the promised, uh, into the promised land under Joshua. And they, have, they settle in the promised land. Then we have the, uh, the tabernacle and the temple where God's presence dwells amongst his people. He said, these are my people. I want them. And that then kind of culminates then at the end. You've got the prophetic writings that say this is going to go wider than just an ethnic group. 
The Jewish people, he's going to go for the nations of the world because I, I want people for myself. We have the story of Jesus in there who he died, we know, to bring the nations in. We've already seen hints of that. He's already said, actually, it's not for you. There's something beyond. And then as we roll through the rest of the New Testament, we see the, the nation, the people of God growing as it breaks cultural boundaries, ethnic boundaries, goes to the ends of the earth. And then we peek at the end, Revelation. We look at the end with John and he says there's going to be a multitude before the throne of every tribe, nation, people, language. And they're going to worship God. God loves his people and he, he, he wants them for himself. And it's, it's a love that motivates it. And the way that God shows his love in this particular, the way Jesus shows his love is washing his disciples' feet. And this shows, so we've got, it displays the love of God, but this action shows us our salvation. It's, it's, a, it's an act, but it's also a symbol as well. So the act that Jesus does is he gets up from dinner. Now, dinner would have been a low table that they'd have all sort of been round. They'd have been, it says, they, they kind of recline on their left side on, a, on like a cushion with the food in the middle with their feet out. So that all the feet would have gone out like a many-pointed star. But obviously, when you think about the culture of the day, their feet would have been the dirty bits because they'd have been wandering around the dust and the mud and, and what Jerusalem would have been like with so many people there and just it wouldn't have been a nice time. And so their feet would have been dirty and it was the role of one of the servants to wash the feet of the guests as they came to dinner. That was their role. And it was the role of the lowest servant the lowest, the most menial task, the one when you're the new boy on the apprenticeship who's joined the company and you got, which is the dirtiest, horrible job that no one wants to do? We'll give it to the, the new guy. That was the role in the sermon. That was their job. But presumably they come to dinner and no one had done it. There was no one there to do it. So rather than anyone actually volunteering, they all kind of ignored it and just had dinner with dirty feet. And Jesus says he, ra- he, wrapped up, he got up at, at dinner during the supper and he, he went round and he took off his outer garment. So he, he appears as the most menial servant. He's taken off his outer garment. So what he's got left is he'll be dressed like the most menial person. He wraps a towel around his waist and he goes to wash the disciples' feet. And if you just kind of, what John adds in there, the detail, where you kind of, let's just comprehend the extent of what Jesus is doing. One, he's doing the job of the menial servant. But it says here that Jesus knew that one of them was going to betray him. He knew. He says the devil kind of attempted Judas, provoked him to betray Jesus. We know this, look at the other Gospels, kind of what this involved. And it says Jesus was aware of this. There was Judas' own actions, which were sinful, but behind it there was a supernatural enemy, the devil, who wanted to destroy Jesus. And Jesus still washed his feet. That's just something to grasp. He washed the feet of his enemy. He's got 12 guys who loved him but were a bit stupid. And then you've got the other guy who, who was going to betray him. And he still, he washed their feet. He washed their feet. And Jesus did that. He got out, he washed the feet. Um, and done it. The, the other disciples would have probably been shocked of this because it, it wasn't the role of the teacher, the rabbi, to do that. And, and he's, their, he's their leader. He's the one they call rabbi. He's the one they called Lord. He's the one Peter's had the revelation. You're the Christ. He, said, he knows who they are. You've seen him enter Jerusalem with the palms. And it's, wow, you've seen him do incredible things. But he's the one doing it. And it, it just bears out what else is written in Scripture. What do we read in Philippians? Very famous passage. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness. And so he, he took the role of a servant and he washed their feet. And behind that, though, behind the, act, the menial act of being that person to do the, the feet washing is a symbol. And the symbol is, it's a symbol of our salvation. It shows us our salvation being washed by Christ. And he comes around to Peter and it's always Peter, isn't it? Why are you washing my feet, Peter says. And he says, you're not going to understand this now, but you'll, you'll get it later. You'll, you'll get it later, Peter. I wonder if Jesus has that kind of, <gasps> it's Peter again. Do you know what I mean? I love him, but it's Peter again, isn't it? He's the one who's, who's saying these things. And Peter's saying, no, he's kind of that exaggeration you can't do. And Jesus says, you're going to understand it afterwards. See, Jesus, uh, Peter's thinking on this socially acceptable level. He's like, you can't be the one to wash my feet because it's just not right. You're the teacher who done that. And I imagine others were thinking the same. Ironically, though, none of them were willing to get up and do it. Jesus was the one who took the initiative. But what he's actually saying in there is actually, if I won't wash you, he says, you have no part of me. That's the, that's the key. If I don't wash you, you've got no part of me. And it's basically, that's a symbol of our salvation. It's what Jesus is saying. If you, if I, you don't come to me, and you're going to let me deal with you and deal with the problem. You actually have no part of me. You can't earn it another way. You can't earn it by um, being good, going through the religious motions, coming to church, reading your Bible, giving money to charity, whatever you think they are, being nice to one another. Whatever kind of is, that's just, that's just legalistic moralism. He says, you can't do that. You've got to come to me and I will clean you. I will wash you. I will do that thing for you. And Jesus is the one there doing that. Uh, there's an extended kind of metaphor where there's a thing about the feet, which is a bit debated, where actually there's that, the idea that Jesus cleans us, but actually sometimes we still make mistakes and need to keep coming back for that continual sort of sense of forgiveness, despite becoming um, Christians and coming and seeking our forgiveness. But the key, the key is you go to Jesus. He's the one. He's the only one who can sort out our problem, and, that, and that's a, an image of our salvation. And then the, the final thing it shows, it shows how we're to act. So we've got the love of God motivating Jesus to deal with the problem of our sin, and wash his disciples and pull them to himself. But then he actually goes on to the end. If that wasn't kind of, that's like, wow. Jesus says, actually, guess what? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's right. But if I'm teacher and Lord and I've done this, what are you to do? You need to go and do this too. You need to be the one doing it as well. I've done it. I've shown you the way. I've shown you how to act. I've modeled something for you. I've kind of led by example. I'm, I'm kind of doing the stuff. And then he, he pushes it back to the disciples. And he says, actually, you're the ones to do it. He says, because a servant, servant's not greater than his master. Not greater than the messenger, sorry. You, if, you're the, if I'm the one doing this, you've got to be like me. You've got to do this too. And so Jesus calls them to act like he has done what he's doing. And what he butts up against is our human pride, often we don't want to take the mini or we don't want to take the lower role. We don't want to be the one doing the, the dirty work, so to, so to speak. But Jesus shows us a different way. He shows us a way of humility, a way of taking that lower role and actually that leading to greatness because through that, Christ then dies on the cross and is now in glory forever. And he says at the end there, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So it's a very clear call that we are to act. We are to work this out. So on the surface, this is just a man washing the feet of 
people he knows, but behind that there is so much more. There are three things I want to just um, highlight as our application and then I'll close and we'll have some time of worship. Number one, if you're taking notes, these are what you write down. Number one, God loves you. God loves you. Jesus loves you. We sometimes say it's a bit trite, you put it on t-shirts and stickers, but it's true. This picture that Jesus has done here with the, the washing of the feet is just one evidence of that. This is kind of one thing, this is the symbol, and we follow it through to the greatest one, which is going to happen in a few chapters' time, but for them it's just a few hours' time, is the death on the cross. Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins. This loving creator who knew there was a problem came to deal with it, and God loves you. And if you are a believer here, if you know that you've kind of you become a Christian, you've made that decision to follow Jesus, you've, you've come to him, you've turned from your sin, you've got to know God loves you. And that you can deal with this in two ways. You can deal with the feelings, well, do I feel like it? Which is nice sometimes. It's nice to feel the love of God. It's nice to feel the love of my wife sometimes. Do you know? It's good. That's a good thing. But actually, underneath that, there needs to be a firmer foundation of a a knowledge that you actually know it to be true. You know this to be true. And if you're in that position where you're like, do you know what, I'm not sure, you need to do something about it. Can I commend to you a couple of practices to help you get this, bed this in? Because this isn't a truth that you can kind of just think, well, we'll, we'll leave it. You need to know the love of God for you. And there's two, two ways I think will be helpful. You need to think about, one, who Jesus is. Dwell on who he really is. Okay, not the kind of pop culture thing they push you, but what the Bible says about him. The eternal God who came to earth as a man. Even that should just kind of push your brains to limits. How do you get eternity into skin? It just doesn't quite work. But that's, that's who Jesus is. He's now enthroned in glory and one day returned to judge all mankind. So you have, who is Jesus? There he is. And then think what he did. If you put those two truths together, you cannot, you cannot get away from the love of God for his people, the love, his love of God for you, because that's who he was. This is what he did for you. It should, just, it should only elicit a sense of actually God loves me, and that's a foundation there that we can stand on. Regardless of what comes as of life, whatever we feel, because feelings change like the weather you know, you can get up and it'd be raining and suddenly the days are right off because you're like, huh, I've got to go out in that. And actually, you know, but underneath there is a foundation of the love of God. If you're not a believer here today, you don't know Jesus, I want to say to you, God loves you. He wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to kind of, he wants to come and deal with the things in your life. He wants to gather you up into himself so you would know and be cherished by a father in heaven. You would have the things in your life dealt with, the sin, the the rebellion against God. You would have a big brother in Christ. You would have a family, the church, and you would have a purpose in life to see his kingdom come. If you're in that situation and you want to know more, please come and talk to me at the end. I would love to talk to you about all that that means. So God loves you. You need to know that. Second thing, salvation means we're clean. Salvation means we are clean. Salvation means you're clean. The biggest problem we face, the Bible says, is not global warming, financial meltdown, cybercrime, terrorism, etc., etc. Et the Bible calls it sin, three letters that mean an awful lot. And sin can mean many different things. It can mean rebellion, 
um, against kind of um, a, 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 an authority. It can mean transgressing kind of um, a law, breaking a law. It can mean not meeting a standard, standard of perfection. But all those things sum up our problem. We are rebels against the holy God who made us. We want to be in charge. We won't let him. We rebel against good, godly, right authority. We don't like it. That's what the Bible says. It says we have broken God's moral law. We've just, we've stampled all over it. God says this is right, this is wrong, and we've said we don't care. We're going to do what we want. And we haven't hit the mark. God's holiness is perfection, and we have constantly fallen short. And that is our problem. And that's been the problem right from the beginning. That was the problem with Adam and Eve in the garden. When they failed, they basically declared independence and sought to usurp God's position. We're going to be in charge. We're going to take control. We're going to take authority. And it's gone wrong ever since. And if we track through the Bible, you find temporary ways of dealing with this, the sacrificial system. You might, might read your Old Testament and think, there are a lot of dead sheep and goats, you know, a lot of dead animals. What is that about? That's, that was the way to deal with the problem of sin. You cannot, sin cannot come before a holy God. Something's got to be punished in its place. That's where the, the sacrificial system come in. The, the death of animals would come in to get us into the presence of God, but it was limited. There was only certain people, priests who could come in certain times a year. There was this kind of barrier, no matter how many animals were killed. And it says, you know, the blood of bulls and goats, they just they can't deal with the problem. It needs an ultimate sacrament. It needs a once and for all to pay the punishment. Enter Jesus. What did John the Baptist say the first time he saw Jesus? Come along. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what again. So Jesus came to deal with the problem. And if you are a believer here, the problem has been dealt with. You are clean before a holy God. God dealt with that. When he saved you, he chose you. He caused you to be born again. We found that in John 3. So you've been made alive when you were dead. You've been justified, which means declared legally not guilty for the things you've done because someone else has paid the price. You've been adopted to a family. God is now your father. You have been cleansed from unrighteousness. And that means the things that you have done, if you've ever done something and felt bad for it, no one nodded there, so you're all lying. <laughs> have you felt done something wrong and felt bad? <laughs> God cleanses you from those things when you, you seek forgiveness. But the other side is true. Sometimes things are done to us that leave that mark. Sinful things are done to us. We are kind of the, the victim. God says, I will deal with those as well. I will cleanse you. You will stand before me holy. It, it happens at salvation. When you become a Christian, there is a once-for-all work, but it's also an ongoing work as we live our lives, get things wrong, our feet get dirty and need to get washed again. And God deals with us we become clean before him and and it's something we need to take hold of if you think there are things in your life that you need to deal with that you've come in this morning and you can feel the weight of them you need to deal with them now before God you can do it right now while I'm talking no 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 you can say repent of your sins if there are things you know that you have done to you and you would like prayer for that we would love to pray with you at the end please let me know or grab someone you know we can pray with you um uh, during the worship time, but God can deal with that as well. He says we can cleanse us from those things. And the last one, we have a model to follow. So God loves us, we've been made clean through him, and then this outworks in an act. And if you look at them, go to verse 3 in, your, in that passage, it's fascinating. What prompted Jesus, or what was kind of Jesus' foundation 
for what he was about to do. It says in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So Jesus' basis for doing the menial task was his identity in God. He knew who he was. It says he knew God had given him everything. He was in charge of all things, all of creation, everything he saw, he had authority over, he ruled over. And from that position of authority, it says he knew where he came from, that was his kind of his divine origin, he knew he was, and he knew where he was going. So he knew what kind of belonged to him, he knew where he was God, he knew where he was going, so he had ultimate security in who he was. He had his identity sorted, he wasn't relying on anyone else he wasn't relying on his disciples to big him up, make me feel good. If you clap when I preach, that, that, that helps me. And if you're there, one of my followers, when I'm going into Jerusalem, that makes it. No, he knew who he was in God, and that was enough. And then based on that, he said he got up from supper, took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around him, and washed his disciples' feet. And that's why those first two are so important. You need to know who you are in God. You need to know that you're a child of God who loves you. He just loves you with, um, didn't we, what do we sing? Overwhelming? Everlasting? You know, those, they can get a bit too churchy sometimes and we lose the meaning of them. But overwhelming means more than you can kind of, kind of cope with it. It comes over you. Everlasting, well that means everlasting, you know? That's a lot. That's the way. And then from that we've been given an act to follow. If you don't have the first two, this last one just becomes legalism. And will beat you down and brew bitterness in you when I sit there and tell you that we should take the lower role and we should be gracious and kind to others and we should do those menial jobs if you haven't got the first ones. But that's what God's asked us to do. He's asked to do, to do serving the kingdom even when it's costly and uncomfortable. I don't think it was comfortable to get up from dinner, take off his kind of robe, get the thing out and wash how many pairs? 12, 4, 24 feet, dirty, stinky feet. Corns and bunions and verrucas and all. Do you know what I mean? He, he did that. There was a costly service. It's just God, God has asked us to do. We can do this in, in church context. We have, the, we have formal serving where people take part in teams and they're on rotors and they do stuff, which is awesome. We also have informal serving where we just serve and love one another in the church, those outside, those we kind of come across in life. I just kind of, as I reflected on this, I thought all the, try to think of some of the things that have served um, me and my family even over the last few weeks just trying to think, how have we been served? Let's break this down. And what I came up with, I, th- I found out you guys are awesome. You really are. You really are. You are excellent at serving. And I know this is just this is me and my family, but I'm sure it's kind of multiplied around the church. So I want to say thank you for all the service you've done, Real Life Church. Keep going. Keep knowing that God loves you. Keep knowing that you are, you're claiming for him and you're secure in your salvation. And out of that comes natural sin. We've had people come and babysit for us. We had someone just phone up out of the balloon and offer us to cook us a meal. I've had someone say, I'll drive you to a meeting because I haven't got the car because Melanie's got the car for the kids run. We've got people who set up in church this morning. All the things that they do to get this happen. I turned up at 10 o'clock and do you know what? Everything was ready. <laughs> it was brilliant. All these people just said, this just happens. You know, I'm just amazed, and I think it's wonderful. Uh, and people are going to sit down and pack up, and we're done. I had a, a director's meeting last week where there are others who serve us voluntarily in kind of running the financial and legal part of the church, making sure it all happens, and we're not breaking the law. We've got life group leaders who meet week in, week out, serving us as a church, loving us as a church. Um, I even asked someone to preach. Um, as a church said, can you cover a slot for me, work out? They were grace, said, no, I'll move this, and I'll come, and I'll cover that. So it is wonderful when God's... Um, 
people are serving, and that's what we're called to do. We're called to be servants, take that lower role. One last thing, and then I'll finish. Can you go to the final verse of that passage? Where was it? 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. Who'd like to be blessed by God? <laughs> what did Jesus say? Blessed are you as you do them. I just, I, something I've noticed recently, with the advent of social media, this comes up a lot. If you've got Facebook friends or if you look at things like that, you, you get a lot, especially from the Christian ones, because you're, you're Christian, you have lots of Christian friends on Facebook as well as others. And they like to put things on there like, um, you know, something's happened in my life, something wonderful, and they say, I'm so blessed. I've been blessed by God, which is great, and it's, it's true. God blesses them. But they always tend to be based around material things that they've received. You know, got the job interview, this has happened, someone's given me something. You know, lots of good things that God blesses his people, and they come in a myriad of form. If we read that verse, bless if you do these things, that's best if you wash feet is the kind of image. I've never seen anyone yet say, do you know what, got to church early, cleaned the scabby toilets, I am so blessed. I'm waiting to see that Facebook update. But that's what that says, isn't it? Do you know what? I was, I was in there cleaning out the bowl, and I thought, I'm so blessed by God. I'm going to tweet that. <laughs> Send. Hashtag blessed. No one does that. But if we read the Bible, that's what it says. That's what it says. I think the other things are blessings. Don't get me wrong. God blesses with so many wonderful things. But actually, he also says there is a blessing in serving and doing. There's a blessing that we actually get there. There's a sense of knowing you're doing something that God has asked you to do. That sense of I'm, I'm kind of, I'm modeling Jesus in the unseen areas. Sometimes they're seen, sometimes they're not. But there's also a sense of actually, we, Jesus talks clearly in the other Gospels about there are rewards at the end. When we get to the end, there are rewards in heaven. And actually, I think there's a blessing that we can receive now, but a blessing we're storing up in faithfulness. And so if we want to be a blessed people, I know you do because you do these things, blessed are you if you do them. Next time you're kind of doing those things, it's actually, oh, this, God is going to bless this in a good way because that's what he says. And I know you're excellent at that and I love that you do that. So let's just leave it with that. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He saved you. He's called you to himself. You are now secure in that. You are clean before him. All your sin has been dealt with. He's now saying, from that place, just go and serve. Go and love people, serve them, do the menial tasks in church, outside church and life. And do you know what? I'm going to bless that as well. I mean, that's double whammy, isn't it? I love you and I've saved you. And when you go and do these things, I'm going to bless that as well. You can't get better than that, can you? Amen. Do you want to stand up? Band, do you want to come back up? I'm going to pray and we're going we're gonna to worship the Lord. The kids will come back soon when they're done. Maybe we want to close your eyes, just open out your hands, and I'm going to pray for the Spirit of God to come on us as his people. I might have to string this prayer out. Are you guys all right? Uh, <laughs> close your eyes. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you loved us. I want to thank you that your love, born in eternity past, broke into this world and you came to the earth as a man. You didn't even come as a man, you came as a baby, a helpless tiny infant, reliant on human parents to raise and love and nurture. Lord, I thank you for that love that pushed you to that. 
that pushed this plan into place. Lord, I thank you that you walked the earth. You got right down in our muck of life. You saw it all. You experienced it all. You saw the pain, the suffering. You were right up close, Lord, and I thank you that love caused that to happen, Lord. I thank you that love drove you to the cross to deal with our ultimate problems, the problem of sin and separation of you, the proper of divine judgment that we would face for our rebellion. Lord, I thank you that you took that in our place. Lord, I thank you that now we can stand boldly, confidently before you and say, I'm clean before God and I can come to him because of what Jesus has done. Not my own efforts, but what Jesus has done. And we can have that, that supreme confidence say, I am clean before you, Lord, because of Jesus. And I thank you and I praise you for that, Lord. And I, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people who willingly take those truths, build them into their lives, and then serve faithfully out of it, Lord. And Lord, I, I pray, God, that you would pour out that spirit of servant-heartedness afresh on us again, that out of a sense of love and gratitude and just awe at you, we would be a faithful and serving people. Not because we want to earn anything, because we can't. Lord, I want to say we love you, we praise you. I thank you, even in our serving, you bless us. <laughs> you bless us when we are faithful to you, when we do those things. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.